Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Inside Outer Limits is a regular feature on the Paranormal UK radio network. Once again, and welcome to another edition of Inside Outer Limits Radio Show with myself, Chris Evers, the man from the Outer Limits magazine, and my co-host, the one and only Mr. Philip Mantle, who is, of course, UFO royalty. Hello, Phil. Good evening, Chris. How are you today? Uh, yeah, yeah, fine. You know, got, got a few minor problems like I always have, yeah. you know. But yeah, apart from that, you know, can't complain. I bet there's one thing I can guarantee, though. I bet it's sunny in Pontefract. It's always sunny in Pontefract. Well, you, you, you know that, mate. <laughs> Even when it's raining, it's sunny in Pontefract. Yeah, absolutely. Now, today we're speaking to somebody who is an old friend. I've, I've known him a number of years, but I think you've had a closer working relationship with our, our guest today. So do you want to tell us a little bit about him, Phil? Well, yes. I'm a, our guest this evening is Russell Callahan. Um, Russ, as many people will know, was uh, is the son-in-law of the, the late Graham Birdsell. Uh, it wasn't just you know a member of the family. Russ and Graham were best of friends as well, and Russ, has, as a result, has been involved in the subject an awful long time, and um, worked on UFO magazine, you know, hand in glove with with Graham. Mm-hmm. And sadly, when when Graham passed away, Russell ran the magazine himself. For about six months before it, sadly, it, 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 it was no longer. Mm-hmm. He also was the publisher and editor of his own magazine uh, called UFO Data, which uh, I was uh, lucky enough to, you know, assist on occasion with him. 
Uh, and he's an all-round nice guy. And I, I, I will say this because I know he won't. He is one of the people we should be applauding at the moment. He's not in the NHS, but Russ works for the Postal Service, so there's no furloughing or anything like that. He's, it's thanks to gentlemen like Russell and his colleagues that uh, whatever you order on eBay or whatever, whatever else you, you can't buy, that pops through your letterbox. Well, Russell and his colleagues are working hard to get it there for you. Absolutely, they are. Much praise and respect for that. I've got to admit absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Hello, Russell Callahan. Hello. Well, hello, and thanks very much for the praise. Yeah, um, in the day job nowadays, I'm just coming up to 20 years in, in this particular job. Um, I look after five offices in North Yorkshire, so my daily week, I travel between 40 and 80 miles a day, backwards and forwards from the office I'm covering. And, you know, I've got something about 350 postmen that work with me and for me and they are doing a fantastic job people just wouldn't understand the actual pressure that's on our our system to to social distance if you can imagine the mail center the one in in leeds for instance you could actually fit four football pictures inside there and the machinery that's in there and then the manual sorting of course was always done in pairs well, now, with social distancing, it can only be done with individual people. So half the capacity has gone for the packets have trebled to the normal expected traffic flow that we'd have at this time of the year. And uh, although not UFO involved at all, it's a, it's a fantastic operation to see it taking place. So much so Royal Mail's opened up an enormous what we call an outhouse in Sheffield, to just to try and take a little bit of the pressure off the local mail centres. And it, it's going, it's getting busier every day. And uh, we can see this continuing now. And in some form, people are getting so used to buying things online, then they're not going to go shopping anymore, which is the demise of a lot of local shops. And you really feel for these people. In my little village here in Kipax, we've just heard... A lady who's had a business for 30 years in the village has uh, had to close it, and that's it. She, she's done now, and um, it's really sad. You know, six years ago she she bought a brand new building, moved a shop into a brand new building on the high street, and that's now gone. And it's simply because people just can't get there to to shop anymore, and it's a sad day. It's a sad day because, like you, and I'm sure Phil's the same yourself, Chris. If I'm buying something. I'm a Yorkshireman. I want to go have a look at it first and give it a check yeah, and make sure yeah. it works. I'm exactly you know, the same. <laughs> I do buy things online. You have to. But, um, you know, people buying clothes, it's like the good old days of your mum's catalogue. And, and people buy three things and send two back. Yeah. Well, that's brilliant work for Royal Mail. But if they went to the shop and tried it on and see if it fit in the first place, then... They don't have to go through all that. So, you know, it's anyway. That's enough of Royal Mail. Yes, twenty years doing the job. I'm ready for retiring, if, if I'll be honest with you. But I can't see that happening for the next six or seven years. Um, but getting on with life and, and, and staying safe. And I hope everybody else who's listening to you know, we think to Mambi Pambi is a little bit as serious as this. You know. Yeah, absolutely. We'll put your retirement out of the way for the moment, because it will be upon you before you know it, mate. Yeah. And, uh, but 
you know, I mentioned in the introduction there, you know, your your work at UFO magazine and UFO data, but take us back to the beginning, Ross. How did you get involved in this this crazy <laughs> subject of UFOs? How did it all come about? It, it stays in my mind, does this? And and what I saw was not. I wouldn't think a UFO, but it triggered something in a in a 13-year-old lad's mind. I, I, I was on holiday down on the south coast. My mum's sister lived down there, and we used to go, me, mum and dad, um, for a couple of weeks in the summer, everywhere, down to, uh, very close to Chichester. And this particular night, me and my dad had gone to the cinema to watch The Love Bug. So that sort of puts a date on it, late 60s. And uh, there's a, about a 10-minute walk from the cinema to get a train in them days. Trains used to run everywhere down south. There were no buses. You got a train. And we're walking back to the train station in Chichester. And it was a beautiful, clear night. And, and looking up in the sky, the stars were all there sparkling and shining. And I saw this red light fly across the sky. And it, it, it to, to a straight-thinking adult now, it, it was some form of aircraft. Because around that area, um, there were there was Thorny Island, which was the sea rescue base um, for that part of the south coast. You've you got a lot of naval and air force bases around that area, so it was obviously something like. But it looked so strange, and the black sky, the white stars, and this bright red light just sauntering across the sky. And I can remember it going through my head: Is that flying saucer? You know, and. and and it must have been from there where, where I really got interested as a young lad. When we got home, lived in Edmund Wyke at the time, Phil, went to the library, thought, well, you know, let's get a couple of books and see what there is about flying saucers and UFOs. And you'll probably remember this. I had to look in the religions section oh, wow. of the library. <laughs> to find something about UFOs because it was basically classed as witchcraft in them days <laughs> and demonism. But a reading books, and I think it was probably The Warminster Thing it was the, the first book. The, 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 something with Warminster was the first one I got out of the library. And that got me really interested. And as the years went on, things happened, and we were in, we've lived in this wonderful area for all our lives, um, there was the odd occasional story in the newspaper um, of course as you get into your teen years and into my early 20s I, I've got a career I, I was actually working on the local buses and um, one particular Sunday afternoon and, and it, it's something about this time scale that, that, that always intrigued me from the day onwards it was 1980. Well, we know what sort of the year 1980 was for, for UFO sightings. We got Alan Godfrey, you know, a, a, a very well-known and, and well-described occasion was the Alan Godfrey incident. Then um, at, at the turn of the year, we had the Rendlesham Forest incident, but that obviously didn't come out for a couple of years that, that, that Rendlesham had actually happened. But it was it was October time, 1980, and I was on a bus service that went from Dewsbury to Bradford, and it went via Oxall Top, where the rugby ground is, which, as you all know, I'm involved in rugby, and that's where I spend my time when the game's playing. I work for Bradford Bulls as well. Um, but 
we were killing time. We were coming back to Jewsbury and we were a little bit early, so we we stood in the in the lay-by for two or three minutes and um, having a drink or a cigarette as we did in them days. And both me and the conductor, uh, me and the driver, were, were looking over towards East Bailey, which, to give an idea of the area, you know, very high-pointed Bradford at Oxford Top, the, the, the clues on the tin sort of thing. It's a very high point in the city. We were looking out towards, you could see Emily Moore across the Lancashire Hills, the, the sun, looking south then towards Sheffield and what have you. But in between that area, just maybe two or three thousand feet up in the air, my eyes were drawn to just a, a light. Now, this was four o'clock in the afternoon. It wasn't dark. The sun was down, but it, but it was still daylight. And I could see this, this silver object. And it looked like it was spinning. And I said to my driver, you see that? And he says, yeah, what is it? Phew, it had gone. Well, that was the one thing that in all the time afterwards and before, that's gone through my eyes that I've tried to calculate that in my brain, what, what I was seeing, and I've never, ever come up with an answer. Now, if you'd have just been sat there, you could have said to yourself, then it's probably celestial object, a star. You know, it was, the, the sun had gone down, but it was still daylight. You can still see stars. Could it have been a reflection from, from an aeroplane? It wasn't moving, but when it did move, within a second, a second and a half, it had gone out of view and it had gone upwards. Not, not across, not left or right. It shot straight up out of sight. Uh, and that was the thing that convinced me and started the engine ticking, if you like, really to get into the subject, and it, it, it all really happened from Merthel. Well, yeah, I mean, it's about that same time in 1980, um, around about that time, but, you know, I'd I, I returned home from working in Germany in 1979, and, um, and it was my 21st birthday as well, another reason for coming home, and that year, 1979, I joined Bufora, British UFO Research Association. I took out a one-year membership. I can't remember where I got their details from, but everything at that point, although it says, you know, British, everything was based in, in and around London. And there was no way I was going to go to London or get there or anything like that. But my interest had, had peaked at that point. And my aunt, who lived around the corner from me, brought me the Evening Post. As you know, Russ published it yep. in, in Leeds, still is. And, and in it, this is, I'm sure it's 1980 now, was a little advert for a meeting of the Yorkshire UFO Society. Tiny little ad, you know, must have cost some three bob to put it in, you know what I mean? And of course, it, it, <laughs> sure was, you it, now, it, Phil. <laughs> it, it was the coming Sunday. So, of course, in those days, on a Sunday, everything was shut like a ghost town, you got one bus an hour if you were lucky, but I managed to find a place, you know, on North Street in Leeds, Centenary House, never yeah, well, I'll tell you the story about that, but never heard of it, I didn't know Leeds that well anyway, but I managed to find it, and of course, who had set up the Yorkshire UFO Society, but the brothers Graham and Mark Birdsell. And I was absolutely enthralled once I got there. So I have to admit, I, I felt like, you know, I, I'd, I'd come home in some respects. I just felt at home. Uh, and like you said, the, the only place you could get any info was the library. And you were lucky if you got a couple of books. Well, of course, at this meeting, there's a there's a book, there's a table full of them. 
and also the the little sort of publications that other groups did up by you know by themselves the homemade things so you know i just i went from there and i'm just soaked it up so how how did you come to meet graham how did, how did you how did you come around to start meeting start um, working with graham birdsell right we we met probably about 95 94 95 um face to face um, I'd gone, like you, I'd gone to Centenary House. And um, you remember David Barclay? Yes. Um, Earth Mysteries man, wasn't he? Beemoth. Yes. Um, well, David had got in touch with me over something, and I, I don't recall exactly what it was, but, but I got pally with David, and, and he was, he was semi-unruid at the time. Um, he wasn't in the best of health, and he didn't like driving anywhere. Um, and I used to take him to little meetings or to go see people. And it, it was, well, I don't think there was the Yorkshire UFO Society at that time. I'm trying, they still put the events on it at, at Centenary House and, and having guest speakers. And I think it was Tony Dodd and Graham. It, it, it was a, a, an in-house presentation this particular Sunday afternoon. And I'd gone and I was watching how, how, how they were doing things. And, and I, you know, it was the old slight projector or the overhead projector and the PA wouldn't work and the kicking it and banging it and trying to get it going. And I had a bit of a background in all that stuff. I'd done a bit of radio work and I was, at the time I was getting into my TV stuff with the rugby. And um, I just went over to Graham and, and what a welcoming guy Graham was, wasn't he? You know, mm-hmm. you, you hear silly stories about Graham, but Graham was everybody's friend. And... They were a welcome for you there at, at Centenary House. You know, Mark was the more serious one. And Mark, a lovely lad in his own right, but Graham was a bundle of life. When, when you saw Graham, it, it, you know, six foot two, six foot three of him, he had a presence about him. And at the end of the, the, the presentation, I'm having a cup of tea with him and a chat and I'm saying, and I thought, if I say something, you might think I'm a bit of a, a big idea or whatever. I just said, you know, Graham, I, I could help you out here with, with, with the way you're doing your presentations. How do you mean? I says, well, you know, I can, I can get your sound better for you. I can get your visuals better for you. Oh, well, we've got a conference coming up in Leeds at the old university, at the old West Yorkshire Playhouse. Can you look after that for me? I said, well, yeah, okay, that were it. In his next publication, I'm there as... Um, technician and what have you and um, off we go and then my interest in the subject came out with Graham and we were able to do things because fortunately I had the equipment um, that they didn't have and I'd got you know they were sound big headed which I didn't want to do with Graham but I knew how to work video um, I knew how to produce video how to edit things how to make computers work for you and um, started putting the stuff together then all of a sudden, of course, we were filming the the um, lectures. At the time, he was having to pay somebody to come from um, Bristol. And to be honest, they were charging him an absolute fortune for what they were doing. And then selling him his own tapes back at a silly amount of money. You know, so I said, look, Graham, we can build all this ourselves for a few quid. And let's just do it ourselves. And that, in the end, 
brought some good income into the magazine because, as you know, uh, and as Chris knows, there's no money in publishing. It's on, on what you can sell from the back of it that keeps you alive. It costs you that much money to get your stuff printed. And then six months down the line, you've got your agent saying, well, actually, five months ago, you sold 2,000 less than we paid you for, so we're going to have to claw that back. And, and it, it's very damaging. It, it's a very... And this day, that is why there's no magazines on the, on the newsstands, I'll be, you know, perfectly frank. Yeah, well, it, it's, it's funny you should mention Centenary House again, because we go back to, to, I think it was 1983, 84, when we did the first uh, conference there. And as you mentioned, it was actually the school for the deaf. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, we, we, you know, we, we used to hire a little room and have the Sunday meetings in it, and then there looked like a hall, a school hall in the middle. So we'd hired that for the first um, conference. Now, Graham left me with the job of getting the um, a PA system. Now, simple bugger here. I run the, the school up. They used to have an old caretaker, but a miserable old devil. <laughs> and I spoke to him and I said, have you got a PA system? And it just went quiet, Russ. You know he thought I was taking the mickey because it's the deaf school. What, why, <laughs> why on earth would they need a PA system? Of course, when I, when I told Graham, you know, he fell over laughing. And he never, ever let me forget it, I can assure you. you know. <laughs> I can believe it. I can, I can see his face. He'd love, love that. But, uh, but, yeah, but, again, you know, go back to the publishing side of it. You know yourself, Mark, lived in... Love Lights, were it, were it, the flats he lived in, which were around the corner, really, from, from Centenary House, which were probably one of the reasons that's why we went there, so Mike didn't have to pay any bus fare or use any petrol. Um, <laughs> you can tell we're talking to Yorkshiremen this today, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> they, they used to publish the magazine, didn't they, Phil, on the Gestetler machine? Well, yeah, the first the first one was the UFOS Journal, and it was a hand-cranked Gestetner machine. And you literally had a, like a stencil over it and you tapped it on and away you went and boy, you thought you're amazing. And then, as, as Russ just mentioned, um, Mark lived on the seventh floor of a block of flats uh, and we actually bought a, a, a live oil printing machine. And it's about the size of a big washing machine or a fridge. And we had it delivered and we're thinking, oh my God, I hope the lifts are working. You know what I mean? <laughs> anyway, we got it up to Mark's flat on the seventh floor, not knowing how to work it, of course. We had no idea. Somehow, we got a chap to come in and, and show Mark how to work it. And then, so we then printed it on this litho machine. So this is a true story. We're printing away one night, and there's a knock on the door. Mark opens it, and there's this, there's this crow, you know, crow Megan man stood there, because <laughs> he lived underneath. <laughs> and, and, and the machine was making too much noise. So the only way we got out of it, we told him we were printing the local uh, church parish magazine. <laughs> so uh, he let us off that night. So there's me and Russ trying to hold this machine up and stick stuff underneath it to stop the vibrations going through the floor to the flat below. And it was so funny, man. It was so funny. And that, that the, you know, from the from the hand-cranked Gestetner, went all the way through to what became, you know, the, the highly successful UFO magazine. 
Um, you know, I, I wasn't around when, when Graham and, and others published it, uh, but it was hugely successful. And, um, you know, fair play to him. It's something that Graham always wanted to do. Like you said, Russ, he had a personality. He wasn't to everybody's taste, you know, but I think we, we realised um, just how generous uh, Graham had been when he passed away. Yeah. Because when you started to run the magazine after he passed away, we asked for some help, people to, you know, provide um, articles and what have you. And, we, we, you know, the, 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 the stuff just flooded in and all the good comments about Graham as well. We went to his funeral and, of course, there was hundreds there, you know. Yeah. Um, which, uh, you know, speaks volumes for the man. I mean, you know, me and Graham, we had our fallout, but we made up some years later. No, oh, me and Graham Fruit used to fall out normally on a Wednesday or a Friday. <laughs> it, 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 and when it got to near publication date, we'd be falling out again. But that was it. It, it was on and off. You know what I mean? The switch were on, the switch were off, and we got on with the job. Loved every minute of it. You know, great memories. Great memories. And um, well, well, I'll give you another example. We were at Mark's flat one day. Graham used to call himself a local government officer. But he was basically he was a parking meter attendant. <laughs> and I'm at Mark's flat, and of course there's no mobile phones in those days. I mean none. And I uh, said so we need to speak to, to Graham. What time does he finish work? So Mark said, "What time is it? It's almost three o'clock." He said, "It's all right. I know where he'll be." So Mark run this cafe in Leeds. Of course, Graham were in the cafe having his tea break in the afternoon. He always went to this particular cafe at three o'clock and finished off his biscuits. You know what I mean? Oh, man. And uh, it was so funny. I, could, I thought, he can't be at the cafe. How does he know he's at the cafe? And, and I remember one, one day, I think we'd been to Liverpool to do a presentation, and I couldn't drive then. So we're coming back on the M62. Graham's driving. Mark's in the front. I'm laying in the back seat. Of course, they're talking about Leeds United. And they were arguing the, the toss about Leeds United. Uh, of course. And then I just did. Because Mark used to call him our kid. Oh, our kid. We've gone, we've gone about 20 miles past the turn off for Leeds. We're almost, we're almost coming to your place to hold this. They've been arguing that much about football. Everything else had gone out of the window, you know. Oh, so they were really happy days. But myself and Graham got invited by Hilary Evans to an Anglo-French conference in Brighton. So again, I couldn't drive, so I said, I'll split the petal with you, Graham, so off we go. And we, we just got on to the, the newly built M25, as it was at the time, so that's going back a few years. And I said to Graham, I need to take a leap, mate. Meaning, when you see a service station, pull in. Anyway, Graham just pulled over on the side of the motorway. You know, <laughs> Slide goes down the embankment, has a leak, comes back, gets in the car, Graham says, I think I'll have one. So off he goes down the embankment, and I'm looking at the map. When I put the map down, I could see behind us the police car, and Graham got fined 30 quid. <laughs> <laughs> he, he says to me, are you going to pay after the fine? I said, I'm hell fired. I said, why did you admit that? You know, he told her the truth. So I you say you had some rattling under your can or something. Oh man! And another thing, he never let me. He never. It was the dearest leak he'd ever he'd ever had in his life. It cost him thirty quid. <laughs> Happy days. Yeah. 
But, but the magazine was successful, uh, Ross. Just give some people some idea of you know what went on with UFO magazine and, and how successful it actually was. Well, the, the numbers. Um, I think the first print run was something like ten thousand copies onto the shelves in the shops. The second print run was something like forty-five thousand copies. That's how quickly it took off. And it, it held those numbers for quite some time um, as a bi-monthly magazine. I think originally it came out quarterly. I think there were four issues a year in, in the very early runs. And then it went to bi-monthly. Um, the subscription levels, which were the direct sales, you know, other than the shops, would have been 10,000 or so at the time. So, yes, it, it, in, in people's eyes, it was a, a big, it made a lot of money. But when you look at the events that, that Graham put on, mm -hmm. those events cost money. They ended up costing money, you know, because he spent so much and brought so, so many people from the world of ufology to this country that, that people wouldn't have had a chance of seeing, you know. Uh, prior to the internet, they'd only read about these people, or these people had written books. These people had been seen on television. And some of the names, I mean, he's had astronauts over at Leeds. He's had, he's had professors, he's had doctors. We've had the greats, you know, the Stanton Friedmans and Robert Bell. Yeah, I think I think me and Graham were almost in competition around that time because I was doing I was doing yeah, I was doing conferences for Bufora, and um, sadly, as it turned out, Ross, you know, I, I lectured at what, what turned out to be Graham's last conference. Yes, um, and I believe at that point, the theatre that he used at the university in Leeds was being split up into two. While they were doing some building work. Yes, that's right. So he was looking. You know, Graham was looking for a bigger venue. Um, yeah. And Graham was like, exactly like you said, you know, he would just say, right, we need to have him, and that's it, you know. Uh, and and uh, he'd fly him from wherever around the world. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be one international speaker. You'd have two days, uh, or even Friday evening and, Friday and evening. Sunday, and there'd be two headliners on every day. And... Yeah. Um, it, it, it cost a fortune, and they weren't just here for the day, put them up for a week, used to take them out, always take them to Whitby for fish and chips or something like that, or take them to York to see the sights. And people spoke so highly of him. When we went over to, to do the one in America, the, the International UFO Congress, which, you know, privilege of the magazine, I, I, I'd been there four or five times, spoken there four times. But everybody, you know, Graham Burtzell, wow, what a man. And, and everybody wanted to shake his hand and, and get his autograph and get a photograph, you know. Uh, and it was quite a place to be, mate. It, it was, he was UFO royalty at the time with Graham. And, and he like, was indeed. I mean, you know, I mean, when he went to Loughlin, of course, uh, Russie paid very out of his own pocket. Yeah. And I remember the, the one trip I did with him, you were there as well. And we shared a stand. We were selling stuff. And um, this chap came up, and he's chatting away. And it turned out, just by accident, that it was Travis Walton's brother. All right, yes. What, what had happened over the road from, from the, the conference was a uh, an RV uh, park. 
that sold second-hand RVs, and he, I think that's what he'd come to look at. He went on the market for a for a kind of an thing, yeah. Yeah, and then he saw the uh, the inflatable alien outside the hotel, and, thought, and just wandered on in. And of course, you could go into the stalls and the stands for nothing, you know. Yeah. And I said to Graham, "Where's Where's Russ? Get him on. Get him. Get Get him on camera. Get an interview." Of course, Graham talked his head off for an hour. He <laughs> forgot all about that, yeah. but. Uh, yeah, it was it was fun. It, it was fun times, and had it not been for Graham, I, I probably wouldn't have gone to Loughlin. I've got to be honest. Um, although I got the invite, my airfare and everything was paid, um, but uh, it, it was it was fun times. Oh yeah, people. You know, um, the RM conferences have been a success so far, but but Chris, it, it's hard to explain to people who've never been out into Nevada to see. At the time, you know, in the in the late nineties, early noughties, this was a seven day event, and and the ballroom was probably what eight hundred a thousand people, Phil. Yes, absolutely. And the before the before from nine o'clock in the morning till ten o'clock at night. Yeah. And this was just wall to wall UFO. Yeah. Now I'm very I'm sure very jealous that you've both been there. To be quite honest with you, <laughs> very jealous. Uh, no, 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 but Phil will agree with me. Um, it was probably 80% fruit and nut and 20% mm, that's interesting oh, and every now and again you got a good one but these people clapped and cheered and they bought books off everybody and the, I mean the one the one that got me I don't know if you were there Phil uh, oh, Reed, Reed Dr. Reed Tom Reed uh, the, the guy with the alien in the fridge and the, oh yeah he had an alien in his fridge yeah oh, well I, I slaughtered him at Q&A <laughs> And, and I put it to him, I told him what, what I'd been doing. I pointed out that his dog was actually a model dog from a, a dog model agency catalogue that it featured in his book. Um, I'd also put to him that he couldn't have recorded the video the way we were doing it, blah, blah, blah. I'm getting booed off. <coughs> Excuse me. And I said, well, look, guys, you've got a choice. <clears throat> you can give him $20 for his book. Or you can say, this is ridiculous. So they all gave him $20 for his book. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you must have sold 500 books. You know what I mean? And anyway, he was just one of the, the nutcases that we, we came across in our time. I think he tried to sue me for $28 million. I think that's what he said he was going to do. I think, he never um, did. I think there are too many people that are like that, that are involved with the subject. To be quite honest with you, there's not many people who appear to have the feet firmly on the ground. For example, um, I was on a, a Facebook page, which is based in Australia, quite recently, and it was, this was a conspiracy thing, um, all about Tom Hanks. Apparently, um, a newspaper Excuse had me. been pre-published in Australia, uh, which was uh, supposed to have been printed on May the 3rd, Bearing in mind, this is the end of April that I'm talking about, it's supposed to have been pre-printed on May the 3rd, and it was to be released on May the 4th, that Tom Hanks had died, yet again. You know, and oh. I ended up having this argument with this lady, you know, and I just said, well, look, I said, if I'm, if I'm incorrect, and he is dead, I will apologise. Will you apologise to me if yeah. I'm correct? I'm still waiting. <laughs> I said, surely, well, you know, Tom Hanks' yes. family would, would come out and say something about him passed on. He's already passed on. Um, the people 
supply sure. his medication because I think he's a, I don't know if he's a type 1 or a type 2 diabetic I said surely they'll be right. wondering where he is and why he ain't got any more air medication you know and, yeah. and she would argue arguing with me of something about this QAnon website which um, sorry Facebook page which was giving out the information so we can fight the war I said what war there is no war going on you know <laughs> and it's it's very much the same you know conspiracies they've been around haven't they well many 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 years but you know I know there was some during the second world war but of course in 1947 one of the biggest conspiracies started nothing had happened at Roswell uh, or had it you know so we've, we've had them associated with, with this the subject that we love called you at ufology and you know I think they'll always surround it well they well, Sorry, Phil, carry on. No, it's all right. It's, you, it's funny you should mention Roswell there, because one of the questions I was going to ask Russ is, Russ also has a small part in the tale of the alien autopsy film. Now, if you remember, Russ, when you, me and, and Michael went to interview Keith Bateman yep. down on the south coast, remember? Yep. Oh, yes. Now, Keith Bateman is the man who, who started it all off by making the tent footage. Just tip. Just tell somebody about our little trip down there. What, what you can remember of him, what Keith was like. Oh, you know, it's, it's funny how you've mentioned this because I, I put a comment on one of Spizzers, one of Spanish's posts, and we have a bit of a giggle at each other. And uh, it's how I referred to, to Ray Santilli as a, um, a dodgy bella boy with history. And <laughs> if we go back a step, to the time in, in Hastings, wasn't it, where we went? Somewhere like that. Was it Hastings? Where they lived? It was near there, yeah. yeah Eastbourne. Eastbourne's where we went. Anyway, these guys, you know, they all worked in the music industry. They they knew Sam Tilly um, and Gary Shufield as purchasers of, of material that they produced. And now, part of the work was it was in the early days of karaoke, wasn't it? And they used to put karaoke discs together, do the backing tracks, you know, for the, the, the popular songs that wanted to go on karaoke CDs at the time. And Keith Bateman told us quite openly the story was that he'd, um, he'd been talking with Ray and, and Ray had got, it seen a book or something on Ray's desk about UFOs. And he sort of said to, to Keith, look, if I got footage of this Rosewell, that's right, and he couldn't even pronounce it, Phil, could he? No, I called it Rosewell to begin with. Excuse me, got a tickle. Um, if I could get footage of this Rosewell, we could make an absolute fortune. So Keith Bateman and, he, and his colleagues had sort of said, well, we've got an editing suite. We could do something, you know what I mean? And that basically was the birth of the, the tent footage. And they got a load of pig swill on what have you from from the local butcher to use as innards. Mm. Um, they've got this old pasting table or table set up, and his his colleague, his business partner, was handicapped, wasn't he? Phil? He was in a wheelchair. Yeah. But but what a funny guy! I mean, if if our, if our listeners want to have a look, um, we me and Phil put something together years ago called Alien Autopsy. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's on YouTube. If you physically search for that, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, you see the interviews with the guys, and I mean, it was a laugh a minute where we were down there, and 
somebody had said to, oh, what do they call the other guy, Keith? And I can't remember. So can you? What, the little, the, the guy the, in the wheelchair? Yeah. That was Andy. Andy, that's right. Andy Price. Is it Andy Price Walters? Anyway. No, 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 it's Andy. It's Andy. It's Andy. Yeah. And they said to Andy, you're going to be the alien. <laughs> he said, I ain't getting on that bloody table. <laughs> I'll be in another wheelchair sort of thing, you know. Uh, so they got somebody's son up on there. <laughs> digging into all these this awful and this and I mean the way it was filmed it, it was terrible, you know, let's be honest it, it was a darkened barn the light was nondescript, they were using old video equipment they tried to age it by running it through the, a few copies off and copying a copy and a copy and, and took it back to Ray and Ray said hmm no, it's not good enough. We need we need to do better than that. And that's where the alien autopsy started. And that's where enter Space, uh, John Humphreys, and all the people that we know. So just, just as a point of record for all these, I'm going to use the word politely, people on on Facebook, on, on YouTube, on all the social media, who still think that the alien autopsy was actually a real event. You need to do something. You need to visit a doctor because trust us, it's as bent as anything that's ever been well, made. Well, I'll give you an idea, uh, Chris, uh, of the type of character Keith was and still is. Um, he put out a, a, this was a time when all the, the Keith Fit videos were in, there was a boom in them, you know? Yes. And Keith says, well, we've got to get one of these. So we had the idea of doing a keep video, keep fit video, but the people in it will be naked. So we had two women and a man doing the exercises completely naked. And somebody looked at it and said, you can't do that. It's not because they were naked. They were actually doing the exercises wrong. Yeah. And he said, he said, well, you know, if you sell that to somebody and they hurt themselves, they might be able to sue you. Well, Keith said, well, I've spent 10 grand on this. So Keith came up with the idea. He sold the story, I think it was to the News of the World at the time, but one of the tabloids, that he'd been overseas and he phoned his producer and he said, we need a new Keith Fit video. And it was a bad line. So he, says, he misheard me and said, I thought it was. I thought he said a nude keep fit video, and this appeared in the newspaper, and he sold thousands of them. You know, he, he you know, and that's what they were like. Oh, and Keith and and the others, and Santilli used to go to this uh, in Cannes. Not only did they have a film festival in Cannes, they have a TV festival there. And they used to go there every year. They'd hire a car you know, at the airport to go to the hotel. And they used to get up to all kinds of stunts. They used to have a race back from the hotel to the airport. He was the first back. And they'd sabotage each other's cars, you know, to, 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 you know, things like that. So you have to understand the people and the environment as well, out of which the, the genesis of the alien autopsy came. Uh, and that's where it, it, it began. And, and, of course, Russ, when... Spiros Malaris, who, for those who are not aware, is the man behind it all. When he decided to step forward, it wasn't me who first contacted, it was you. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Um, it's just, it's a fascinating story, and, and people might think that we've gone on about the alien, to- alien autopsy for, for 20 odd years now, but it, it's been a story that's evolved. But in reality, I think Phil, Graham, myself, Mark, we knew in 1998 even that this was totally fabricated. And, but, but recently, I'd just got the straightest of faces. You know, I wouldn't want to play poker with him because he sat there and he's lied to people. But people say, well, he should be sued for, for what he's done. Well, no. The only people who are fools in all of the alien autopsy are those people who paid money out to grab the rights to show the stuff on TV, the... the um, the own video market, the, the, the major TV programs, they all paid Ray Santilli an awful lot of money on, on the fact that it was untested, unproven, and they took the risk, and they, they're the ones that the, the, the populace, if you like, have turned on, saying that, that, that it was there. And it was, wasn't it, Phil? You know, buyer beware. Yeah, I mean, I mean, strictly speaking, I I suppose I'm not a lawyer, but I think technically, you know, there may be a case to be answered. However, all the TV companies and magazines that bought this off Santilli all made money out of it themselves. Absolutely, absolutely. They weren't financially damaged, nor were their reputation were damaged or anything like that. Uh, I mean, it, it launched people's careers in some respects. Yes, absolutely. And, and, but I'll give you an example of Sam Tilly. Uh, in, when the, after the film had come out, of course, you know, Graham fired, you know, all barrels at him. And um, I think at the end of the year, or it might have been the following year, um, Sam Tilly had some special bottles of wine. Uh, yes, yes. With a flying saucer on the label. Yeah. And he, and he sent a bottle and had it delivered to Graham. It was a worthy adversary, wasn't a it? Word, a worthy adversary. Yeah. And I, I've got Graham's report on it here. I <laughs> can't now. And it, uh, although he, his conclusion was right, he had no idea what had, what had happened. No. You know, but he tried his damnedest. You know, fair enough. Uh, but, he, he, you know, none of us had a, a clue at that time what, what lay behind it. But... Um, of course, when Spiros first phoned you, you, you put him in touch with me or you, you give him yep. his phone number and, and the rest of the say is history. Yeah, so, absolutely. And that, you know, I'm, I'm still being berated about it even now, you know. Uh, <laughs> it, it will never die. So, so Russ, you know, I, I, I keep mentioning that there were other people involved in this uh, alien autopsy saga and there's too many to mention, but Russell Callahan. You know, is one of them and played a very important part of it. I, I was speaking to uh, David Clark just a few weeks ago, and uh, I, I had to remind David that he was the one that released the information to the press. Yes, he was. Because he got it off me. I, I let it slip. He ran an article uh, down in Sheffield. I was then telephoned after that was published by White's Press Agency, and they asked me all about what was going on, so I, I quoted what Sam Tilly had told me, and then it went, that went around the world. You know, I'm getting faxes and phone calls from all four corners of the globe 
you know. And that's how it, it got into the press. Somebody said, oh, Sam Tilly's marketing machine, he's doing a great job. There was no marketing machine. He just <laughs> took off and he ran with it, you know. That's right, yeah. And that's Absolutely. why last year, when there was this email dump that was sent to Bigelow, um, the billionaire, and yep. it's all about Dr. Kit Green's um, investigation and, and information about the alien autopsy film. Kit Green mentions right at the end of it that he spoke to some of Santilli's PR folks and they weren't very nice and they weren't very bright. Well, I thought, which PR folks is he referring to? Because <laughs> there weren't any. You know, he didn't have any PR folks. He brought in a guy called Chris Carey in 1995. But Chris was mainly the sort of contract negotiator. Uh, and he, he, you know, he, he put, he kept the lead. He tried to calm things down a bit, but it was too late. You know, the, you know, the genie had escaped by then and was up and running. And, and, um, Santilli done out, done very well out of it. But, uh, well, carry on, mate. I'm just going to say, it did very well out of it. Then we got the Anton Deck movie, which obviously somebody bought the rights to that. And in all fairness, for me, the story was yours there, but they took on the Ray Santilli side of it. And, and of course, I think, well, both Ray and Gary, Got a cameo appearance in the film, didn't they, when they're coming out of the cinema at the end? Well, that came out in 2006, I think it was. Yeah. Before that, I, as you know, Russ, uh, I was working for Heather. Yeah. She's a small publisher in Leeds. And she said to us one day, oh, my, my boyfriend's coming. We, never, we didn't even know she had a boyfriend. So this yeah. chap arrived. I was sat having a drink with him at lunchtime. And I said, what do you do for a living? He said, well, I'm actually, you know... A fully trained barrister, uh, but I, I, I don't, you know, I, I actually do contract work. That's my job, you know. Right. And of course, my boss Heather knew of my involvement, the interest in the alien autopsy film, and he says, "Guess what? I've just been approached by Ray Santilli and his pal Gary Shufield. <laughs> they, they've got a contract for a movie, and he had it in his briefcase, Russ. Oh well. <laughs> and he showed it to me." Well, that's the small world this is. Yeah, say we live in a bubble. So um, it showed me yeah. that I, I, I learned how much the, the budget was, how much they were getting paid, yeah. and a lot. So in 2006, I was, that's the last time I met Santilli face-to-face, and Gary Shufield, yeah. I went on the train down to London. We met at this rather nice sort of gentle, old-fashioned gentleman's club, you know. Yeah. Ray sat there and Gary sat there, and, uh, and, they're, and they're talking, you know, nonsense as forever. And I said, oh, by the way, and how much you got paid for the Ant and Deck film? Oh, we didn't get anything. I said, this is how much you got. <laughs> and you should have seen the look on their faces. <laughs> and, then I, and I told them, I told them where I got it from. <laughs> and they said, what else do you know? I said, well, I said you'd be surprised what I know about YouTube. <laughs> you know, and, and they were absolutely stunned, Russ. Oh, yeah. And of course, you know, this is how honest I am. Ray Santilli pulled out of his briefcase um, a round sort of plastic thing about the size of a saucer. Yeah. And in it was like two strips of film. So this is yeah. the real alien autopsy. Of course, we're inside at this just gentleman's club. I said, can I take a picture of it? He says, of course. I said, is it all right if I go outside? <laughs> and I'll hold it up to the light and take a picture. He says, yeah. So I took it outside, took a couple of pictures and gave it back. And then Ray said, never thought you could have run off with that. And I said, yeah. no, I, I think either. There's a taxi there. I could, have got on, I could have been in the taxi. 
back to King's Cross and on the way home before yeah. they realised that something was wrong. You know, <laughs> yeah. but uh, I mean that goes right back, Russ, to yeah. 1995 when I first yeah. went to Sam Tilly's office, uh, to sh and he showed us the tent footage for us. Yeah. It was the second time I went. There's a box behind his desk, all full of film canisters. And he says, that's the alien autopsy film in there. And he showed me a little bit of the leader. And then he went. You yeah. know, one of his, his um, somebody who was one of his employees wanted him for something. And off he went. Yeah. And I, I never thought I could, I could have had one of them canisters up the jumper or, yeah. in, or in my wife's handbag. You know, yeah. and he, he would never have realised. It would have been too late by the time we got home. But I'm just, that's how honest we were. Yeah, that's right. The options were there. Just talking about something we mentioned there, um, which, which sort of it, it stays with Roswell, where we're on about the people on about talking to his press people and what have you, and the like. The fact that there wasn't really anything like that. Um, do you remember the interview we did with James Bond Johnson? Yes, um, yes, it was, it was actually the guy who took the photographs that that we know with with Marcel. Um, holding the, the debris at, at the 509th. Now, James Bond Johnson was an educated, honest, lovely, lovely guy, who at the time of the Roswell incident was working his way through college as a reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. And all this talk, when you, you, you listen to even modern-day um documentaries and, and the the dons and, and, and people like that who wrote books they all talk about the press conference etc there wasn't a press conference at Roswell James Bond Johnson were presented with four parcels in his words he said they were like packets of meat tied up with string in newspaper and he says I opened them up and laid the stuff out to take a picture he said, meet with this foil and balsam and bits and pieces, exactly what you see in the films. He says, but I actually laid them out. He says, I was the only photographer there. He was the only one. And it just shows how people jump onto something and it, it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows. And, you know, Roswell's got a lot to answer for it in many people's minds. But the fact that there was never a press conference about the, the wreckage that was taken allegedly to Wright Patterson Air Force Base. Mm -hmm. And it's just, that's the way things go and our stories get blown out of all proportion. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember being in touch with him, uh, Ross, you know, and, and corresponding with him. And um, you, you, you're absolutely right. There was no other. I, I mean, his photographs that he took that day may well have been used by other newspapers around the world, yeah. but the fact is they all came from him. They had to get, a, they had a receiving machine at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram for wire photographs. And it was something like a two-hour each-way journey for him to go out to the base. And by the time he'd been out, got his pictures and come back, they'd actually installed a sending machine in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram to get those photographs around the world because the, the phones, even then, after the simple press release from Walter Hoyt, the phones were off the hooks. And that's where all the information came from, was the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. So talking about 
press releases and, and um, you know, talking no. about press releases and information spreading around the world. Of course, we had uh, the New York Times, didn't we, quite recently, and you know, December the 16th, 17th, 2017, admitting that there was something behind. You know, the Pentagon had said there was something behind these stories that, the, you know, and it came across like that this incident uh, with the Nimitz was a, a unique incident but of course if you just bear with me gentlemen I'm just going to play a clip identify the UFO in question did the pilots that night believe they had been simply chasing artificially created images listen now to the actual words of one of those pilots as he described what happened during this incredible encounter uh, it stays very calm and it does you always get the feeling it does everything under control Till, uh, till it says, well, now it's enough, and uh, always happened. I think with, with me it was uh, about 18 miles out that uh, the thing just decides, okay, this is enough. Get an increase of airspeed from uh, 50 to 100 miles an hour uh, straight to, uh, well, let's say uh, Mach 8, Mach 9, Mach 10, incredibly. And the altitude, well, uh, it went from uh, 5,000 feet straight up to uh, 60, 70,000 foot, uh, just in a split seconds. In that clip, of course, it, it comes from the, the Belgian sightings, the Belgian wave in the in the late, was it the late 80s, early 90s? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, March 19, uh, 1990, um, when, when the Belgian news sightings, and the, the, just let me get you in the picture there. That it was at the beginning of 1990, people started seeing strange lights in the skies over Belgium. Um, a few months later, I think it was March 1990, there were sightings of multiple objects. And these were confirmed by two uh, military ground radar stations. Two F-16s were sent out to investigate the anomalies. Now, the pilots couldn't see anything visually but their radars were giving them the information, if you like. They were locking onto targets. They could see the speed. They could see the direction. And it was this that, that um, Colonel Wilfred de Bruyne, who was the head of the Belgium Air Force at the time, uh, released just a couple of weeks after the event. And that made national news. And, and if, as, as in the clip, you can hear the, the pilots telling you exactly what was going on. Um, but the funny thing about this, and Philip will appreciate that, you can hear the budgie tweeting in the background, Phil, <laughs> of this actual interview. And of course, it was Tony Dodd who did the interview <laughs> at, at his house, <laughs> invited the, the pilot over and stayed with Tony, I think, for a couple of nights. And Tony's got his little cassette recorder going there to, to record the interview, and the budgie wouldn't shut up. So, so we've got the pilot with a real-life bird on there as well. But it's just what we're saying is it, it, this is, again, one of these cases that 30 years ago we had pretty compelling evidence that something unusual had been observed on radar. Mm. It hadn't been seen physically. And when we go to the Nimitz stuff, yeah. again, all this footage that you're seeing... It's all on the flare uh, infrared. What, 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 the, what the US Navy was saying about this uh, roster is... So, so I think what what the, the, the US Navy was saying about this was that they couldn't see it before. It was only because they had a new radar system installed that they were then able to see it. Right. 
So, you know, as you're saying, it was the radar that, that was the, the instigator of it. Yeah, because... Uh, the and I'm still saying the pilots didn't see anything physical. Um, on the later one, the Tic Tac, the talk about the Tic Tac shape thing. Mm. Now, I, I watched the series. Uh, it was on towards the end, of, uh, no, the beginning of this year. Uh, I forget the guy's name, but he he was apparently something to do with the CIA's watch on UFO and aerial anomalies, if you like. And it is, his background checks out that he's at, he was actually who he says he was, and he quit. And they did a six-parter on the History Channel, and it was basically all about the Nimitz incidents and, and the, the follow-up incidents that happened. Um, is it just going to be another case of, well, here you are, this is what we've seen, and nobody's ever going to come forward and tell us what we've got. Because if, if the government have had, or the Navy or the CIA have had this stuff since 2004 and have just decided to release it now, then you've got to think that they do know what it is and it's safe to release it. Because if they didn't, would it still stay underground? Although... Well, well the thing about it as well was when you, when you watch the one that's with the flur and that thing's keeps changing its angle. You can hear yeah. the pilots talking. And, he, and one of the pilots said, there's a whole fleet of yeah. them. Yeah. But we don't see that. No, we don't see that. Surely. But do you remember the other one, Phil, that was very similar to to that footage on the, on the flares that came out late 90s and it was claimed it was over uh, Nellis Air Force Base? Yes, I do. Yes. Onto something, and those they look very, very similar. Yeah. Now, going if if we're looking at something in the 90s that was maybe experimental technology, then then is that what we're seeing in in the the war games that they're playing? Is is well, that something they picked it, up on? It could well be, but I think what happened with the Belgian wave it was simply because it was Belgium. So it got it got downplayed because, but it's little old Belgium. So what? But it didn't, but it didn't matter that they flew the latest <laughs> fighter fighter jets that were around because they're part of the NATO alliance, of course. Yeah. You know, and, um, and you're right. But, a ma massive American Air Force uh, influence around the area, wasn't there? Absolutely, and not only that. Again, we have to take things. Um, Look at things in, in context. When you look at the New York Times, when you look at the history of its dealings with UFOs, it's very infrequent at best. Yeah. We're always pretty sceptical. Now, you know, come 2017, December 2017, that all changed. And I, I remember reading um, a follow-up. They put the article online as well, of course. And I remember reading a follow-up about it. And that particular story online got more views than any other story that ever showed yeah. online. So it shows you. Uh, and of course, I wouldn't expect the New York Times to, to have such a pro-UFO feature in it if there wasn't some substance behind it. Yeah. So, uh, and from what I've learned from others, that there, there have been negotiations about it for some months. But as you say, Rossi, it's not it, it's it's not on its own. I'd like um, to play, I'd like to play devil's advocate here with you, Phil, on this one because on, uh, well, 
obviously New York's had a terrible, terrible time like the rest of the world with the COVID uh, virus and what have you. And sadly, you know, thousands of people have passed away with it over there. But one of the things that's been hit, we've got our politicians now asking people to buy newspapers because the newspaper industry is really on its knees at the moment. And I'm sure that's going to be the same across the states where people are going out, they're not buying the physical papers, etc. Was it time for a, want to a better word, a good news story as opposed to all the doom and gloom? Because I must admit, you turn the news on and it is, it's doom and gloom, isn't it? All well, the we have to, you're absolutely right, but newspapers are there to, to sell newspapers. You know, uh, and and we have to take that in, in, into context as well. But, you know, like you said, it's not an incident, it, it, you know, it's not an isolated incident. Really you not. Go back to the things in Belgium and the one over, over Nellis and so on. But what, it, what seems to happen is that you get all this interest and then all you get afterwards is arguing about it. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's no real follow-up. Um, you know, uh, and I, I read something by um, John Greenwald, who runs the Black Vault. Yeah, John, John does a great job. Yeah. He said, you know, he, he's a little bit sceptical about how these films were released, you know, uh, and he says, people won't talk to me now because yeah. it, because of my approach. And I thought, well, isn't that just crazy? You know, that's just, you know, just about sums it all up. Yeah. But I, mean, I like to think myself, like, like yourself, I love this subject for the the history of the subject. It, it's more, it's still a fascinating subject, and I'm sure one day we'll get to the bottom of a lot of the stuff. I mean, look at it. We've got no aircraft in the sky at the moment. People are reporting all sorts of things, but we've got the Starlink satellite. You can see every satellite in the sky. Lovely clear evenings we've been having. There's no aircraft in there to confuse you. Um, but all these so-called UFO reports that we, we're getting at the moment are seen on a night. Now, we've still got the same clear skies in the daytime, and nobody's seen anything. You know? So, Listen, Russ, we've always had, we've had clear skies since 1984 when Mrs. Thatcher started to close down the, the, the coal yeah, mines. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, but just trying to, the point that we're going to go to is the history of this thing. Yeah. Um, we're talking about the Navy releasing footage and what have you. You know this story, Phil, and, and I'm sure Chris knows knows of the the Operation Main Brace yeah. back yeah. in what was it, September 1952, something like that. that. Yeah. Um, there was all sorts of things seen, but just one of them was um, the crew of a Danish destroyer who was spotted in 1952, this is, a triangular-shaped object moving through the sky at alarming speeds. The unidentified craft emitted a blue glow and was, uh, was estimated by... Uh, Lieutenant Commander Schmidt Jensen to be travelling upwards of 900 miles an hour. Now, that's just one of the cases within the Operation Main Brace, which was a set of war games played out just after the war, obviously, and at the start of the Cold War. But something I love about this, and it, it, it was probably one of Nick Pope's better things, he, he, he was quite friendly with the late Lord Hill Norton, who was a great advocate of, of the UFO subject, uh, in the House of Lords, but he he was intrigued by the Mainbrace stuff, and um, it explained. It, it, well, it's years ago I saw this, but he was explaining how he'd, he'd 
contacted crew from one of the vessels that was involved in Operation Mainbrace that had reported seeing this strange craft. And we said, after a lot of searching, I asked to see the ship's log, because the ship's logs are obviously when completed are stored in, in naval archives. And the only thing he could find out was to be told that, oh, unfortunately, it had been washed overboard during the operation. And his reaction suggested at the best, this was total incompetence, or at the worst, someone was lying through their teeth. And it's stuff like that that makes this subject absolutely fantastic for well, me. Well, as, as you both know, quite recently, um, okay, the, the, the original documentation came out, as we said earlier, and December 2017 into the New York Times that there was something behind these UFO stories. Now, I think one of the big things that has come out quite recently, I think it was towards the end of April uh, this year, which is 2020, if you're listening sometime in the future, um, that the Pentagon have actually now officially released and acknowledged the articles that had gone into the New York Times. And since that has happened, um, it was recently reported as well that uh, the Japanese military have um, updated their own protocols for intercepting mm -hmm. and uh, reporting uh, UFO sightings as well. So it is beginning to have, it is beginning to spread around the world. This kind of, is it more opening up or what more disclosure? Through which these these three videos came was was called ATIP, Advanced Aerial Whatever Program, and in the in the Times article it mentioned that they'd spent something like thirty odd million dollars on this program. Well, is that all they've got for the money? It's three videos. It's thirty odd million. Okay, in in the great scheme of things, in 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 the. Uh, Defence Department of the United States, it's a drop in the ocean, but it's still an awful lot of money. Yep. You know, and surely there must be something more than, than, than just that. There has to be. And, and and as you say, Chris, you know, we, you know, it, it, it looks as if, you know, others are following suit. And what I would say is, how do we know, for example, that other countries also haven't had their own secret UFO study, like this one was. Nobody had a clue. There was no whiff of it, not a smell, nothing, until yeah. it came out. You yeah. know? So, uh, how do we know that, you know, maybe our own government might have one. Uh, uh, you know, governments sometimes are pretty good at keeping secrets, because after all, it's one of the jobs that they're supposed to do, you know, is keeps is keep the certain things secret. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, Go on, go on, Russell. It'd be interesting, Phil, if, if there is a new, um, a, a serious look into the subject and, and, and good money's spent, would it ever get into the public public domain? I mean, I'm sure, like me, I've watched with tongue-in-cheek and head in the hands Project Blue Book. The, the actual programme making is very good. It's very good entertainment. It's very well made. The special effects are up to it. You know, it's cinematic in its look, but it's the biggest load of boohoo I've ever watched in my life. Yeah. Well, we were um, fortunate. We had Paul Heineck uh, on, yeah. on, a, on the podcast. Uh, All right. He explained the reasons behind it, and he would probably agree with you, Chris. It's not meant to be a documentary. No. It is entertainment. 
Uh, yeah, it's entertainment, but it belittles to me what Einick did. Well, he, he doesn't see it that way. What Paul told us is that down the years, there have been a number of proposals put to the Heineck family to, to, to you know, do something about Dr. Heineck and his work and so on. And they'd always rejected it. But they thought this one was a good right. idea and a good way of doing it. Yeah. Um, so it was the Heineck family who gave permission in the end. And, of course, Paul and Joel are so-called consultants on it. And he said, our consultancy is that we get an odd phone call now and again. And that's that's about the limit of it. But what right. was nice, he also told us the story of um, when Heineck did his cameo in the movie. Yeah, Encounters. Because yeah. they did a reenactment of it. And actually, Paul Heineck is in it. And he's actually one of the cameramen panning back oh, right. down at the actor of his dad. So you've got him playing a yeah. cameo in a drama about his father. Oh, that's beautiful. So, yeah. you know, the Heineck family, you know, were, were, were pleased with the way it's done. And, of course, I think, if I'm right, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, I think I think season three is already greenlit and they were talking that's about correct. season four that's as well. Correct. Are they really? Wow. Yes. So it has been a huge success. And, um, I mean, uh, good luck to them. The, the, right. the, the series that you were talking about that showed the A-tip stuff and, and you know, and the Tic Tac was, was called Unidentified, I believe. That's right, that's right. And, and they also are doing another series because they, they, they were in touch with myself and my colleague Paul Stonehill yeah. uh, to, see, to see if we could help. But, so there's another one of those on the way. And I would hope that in this one we may see something else that's come out of these files. Absolutely. Um, you know, so you know, keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, do you mean, they were well made, those unidentified, they were very watchable. Uh, there were a little bit of dramatics in it for me, that, you know, the way, the way that they talked to uh, interviewees and a little bit over the top on his, on his military credibility, if you like. And, you know, obviously, the military's let him speak about this. He's, he's not just gone out on a limb because he'd have been locked up. Uh, the way the American secrecy works and what have you. So, it, to me, he's had permission to go forward with what he's done, very much in the way that, like, when Nick Pope were writing books, that he had to get them sort of... MOD permission. Okay. Yeah, they before. had to be clear. They had to go through a clearance process yeah. at the MOD. You know? Yeah. Of course. Uh, it's um, not about... Sorry, John. I'm just, just going sorry. to add, over the years, you, you know, we have seen... I call it the Hollywoodization of the subject. You know, sure. obviously yeah. they've, they've got something to sell, TV show, um, a movie, etc., etc. I mean, just look at the way uh, Travis Walton's experience w was was filmed, and you know, he, he's always said the aliens that he saw were nothing like the ones that mm. appeared in the movie. Yeah. You know, the Hollywood put, put the Hollywood uh, bit of gloss onto it, didn't they? You know, I think they will always you know, do that. You know how that came about? Go on, Edford. You know how that came about? Well, what it was, I was I was actually hired to help promote the film when it came out. And one of the things we did, we actually uh, had a, an evening in in London with uh, Travis Walton and Mike Rogers. So they gave a presentation, you know, and then they had a press conference afterwards. And Travis told us that what had happened was originally the the scene where he, re, he remembers his, his abduction sequence, if you like, was done pretty much correctly. However, 
at that time, the, just out of the blue, was a series of beer commercials on the TV in the US that had the same aliens in it that was going to be in the movie. So Excellent. the people behind the movie said, we want that scene rewriting and done differently. What we will do, we will keep the emotions and the feelings in it, but the actual visuals will be completely different. So Travis will tell you when he awakened inside this thing, he felt as if he was enclosed, although he wasn't, but he felt that, you know. So you see on the movie in that sequence, he is enclosed in this gooey yeah. stuff, you know, and he's floating around. Uh, and uh, so, you know, the emotions and the feelings and everything like that are correct, but of course the visuals are nothing like it at all. So originally, it was going to be pretty accurate. And I, I'll tell you a little story. I used to work at a bank in a big call centre, and one day I'm, as usual, bored out of my teeth. So I did a little search on Google, and I put, for whatever reason, I put Travis Walton. And I went back and searched and so on, and I found an old newspaper article that was written not long after the, 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 the encounter happened. What was it, never, was 75? Mm -hmm. and, and it was actually a British journalist, although he, he, he was living in Australia at the time. So they flew him from Australia to the States to meet Travis Walton. Now, all the way over on the, on the plane, he's saying, I don't believe it, don't believe it, don't believe it. The funny thing was, he says, when I was at the airport, I was met by Travis's brother. And he says, he's the meanest, toughest-looking <laughs> cowboy you ever met. And Travis's brother said to him, I don't care whether you believe my brother or not. But if you laugh at him, you, you know, you're in big trouble. So he went and interviewed Travis, got back on the plane, all the way back, still saying he didn't believe it. But he couldn't give a reason why he didn't believe him. He just didn't, and that was it. But, um, you know, because I asked, I, I met Travis a couple of times, and I said, we didn't see much of your brother in the film. And that's, you do actually see him, you know, with a dark beard, the, the actor that plays him. That, that was the same guy who was waiting at the airport for this journalist. But um, what is interesting, there's a link to West Yorkshire with, if, if, and Russell know this probably better than I do, with Alan Godfrey, is there not? Do you remember the story, Russ? No, the... The Fire in the Sky film and Alan Godfrey. Oh, right, well, yeah, because um, basically the the deal had been set up to do the Alan Godfrey story, is that right, Phil? Yep, absolutely. Um, that, to the fact that I think they'd even started some production. Now, but what was it? What was it that, that got him to change it? I don't know what got him to change it. For those who are not aware, Alan Godfrey was a police constable in Todmorden who had an, a, an encounter and under-aggression and abduction. And um, they actually, the producers came and met Alan, you know, and they even filmed a little pilot. That's right. Which was not for broadcast. This was just for sort of internal use. And you see, I've seen it, Russ. It's dreadful. But it, it wasn't meant to be anything super. It was just a visual that they could use. Is that and the one where we used that American Mini for the police car? That's right, yeah. 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 A green thing, a green thing. There were loads of lights yeah. on it. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so it was a toss-up between Alan Godfrey's story or that of Travis Walton. And I think they went with Travis simply because there was more people involved. You know, yeah. uh, you know Alan was on his own and, and that's it. 
Well, it's Travis. There's the five others. There's, he's missing for five days. You know, the th- you know, have you murdered him and all this lot? So there was, I think there was a bit more to the story, uh, and that's why. But it, it was nice to think that you know, a, a story from from our neck of the woods made it all the way to Hollywood, but didn't quite make it. But it pretty much did. Yeah, it's so strange, isn't it, with the, with the big events that we've had that haven't actually made it to film. Where you and I and, and, and Chris were probably, you know, straight off the top of your head, you've got Alan Gottfried's story. That would make a fascinating film. Um, Rendlesham's, how oh, that's never been made into a movie, I have no idea whatsoever. Even if they took my take on it, where it, where it was a, a bit of a hoax, but, um. <laughs> that went down quite well at, at, at the first conference, didn't it, Rush? You, you did get some, you got, yeah. you got a bit of slapper for that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, journalists in hiding, but, but you know... How, having said that, Russ... I, I have I to that. ask that question. Why on earth didn't they know what was going on next door? Well, having said that, Nick Redfern's just got a new book out. Well, I've got something on that as well here, and there's something in that that doesn't quite ring true. Well, I've ordered a copy, so I can't comment on it until I've right. seen it. But he claims it was some kind of psychological warfare test. Yes, you know, made against the base to see how they'd react, and they used lasers and holograms and all yeah, this kind of stuff. Well, that's where I'm going to pin on, on Nick because using holograms in 1980. Well, there you sounds go. a bit far. Yeah, you can't do that. To, to to even the holograms we've got today, you need a thin gauze screen and a projector, right? Look at what we had in the movies in 7980, and and Watch some special effects from that time. They are pretty poor compared to what you'd expect to see yeah. today. Now, they had the millions and millions and millions of dollars did, did Hollywood to make something that you believe would happen. It's like the original Superman film from the 70s where you will believe a man can fly. Now, when you watch that on an HD television, you can actually see the black... Matt around Superman every time he's flying, it looks absolutely terrible. So I, I take the holograms out of there. Mind control, after the event, I can understand that. Yeah, they're, they're going to have to quiet people down. But it'd be an interesting week because I like Nick. He's a, he's a straight talker. Well, we, saw, that... we saw a hologram last year. We went to the Leeds Arena to see uh, Jeff Wayne's musical version of What Are the Worlds? Yeah. And of course, they use a hologram uh, of Liam Neeson. Yeah, but it's, project, it's a projection. It, it, it's, exactly. It, it's not something that's physically formed in front of you. It needs projecting from one or two cells. It. So, it's, not, it's not in thin air. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that's me. So, for me, I mean, he says uh, in, in the synopsis of his book that's on, that's on Amazon, um, the book claims the object was on three legs. Yeah. Well, so so was the dummy boilerplate capsules that belong next door. That stood on three legs as well. But that's enough of that because it causes controversy. And, well, and, we'll, we'll, we'll cause a bit more controversy, shall we? We'll go back to Roswell. Yep. Because recently it's been the anniversary of another infamous Roswell fake, which was the Roswell slides. And they, they, yeah. Of course, they were released in Mexico by our old friend Jaime Massoon. Yeah, and of course they were they were a slide of a of a of a mummified uh, youngster. 
<laughs> and of course, I think you had some dealings with with Jaime in the past, did you not, Ross? Sure, I've stayed in his house, mate. I've lived on the mountain with him. That's where you've also, you've also if, seen if the large buildings from... that were in one of his UFO videos <laughs> as well, Russ. <laughs> Just... well, this was the we couldn't find it. it. Took me a long time to find this building. <laughs> I stood in his garden, got my camera, zoomed in, and filmed it yeah. from his house. You know, so that's where my trust in Jaime went through the floor, which I didn't have a right one in the first place because again, somebody else who was a and still considers a friend, is Michael Hessman. Now, Michael was so involved with Jaime. Um, you know, when they released the Video 2000 stuff with the the, the UFO video library, whatever it was called, the yeah. encyclopedia, with about six videotapes full of balloons and all sorts of stuff. Well, Daniel, uh, Daniel Manoz, <coughs> excuse me, tickled talking too much. Um, Daniel Minos was, was Jaime's assistant uh, at the radio station, at the TV station, um, looking after his um, UFO conferences. And I spent an afternoon with, with, with Daniel in the office going through stuff, you know, stuff to bring back for the magazine, because Jaime, being Jaime, said, oh, take copies, anything you want, you can have it, you can have it. And I'm sat there with Jaime, uh, with, with Daniel, and Daniel's telling me, you know what he says, when Michael comes, he says, they sit there and argue if it's a spider, or if it's water, or if it's a balloon, and they still put it on the video tape. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, that's on the record. That's on the record. I was there when he told me that. And it, it was Jaime who, uh, sorry, I keep getting mixed up, it was Daniel who actually slipped me a wonderful videotape that I showed at Leeds many years ago. Um, it's all in, in Spanish. But the Carlos Dios UFO. Mm -hmm. Did you ever see the presentation I did on that, Phil? I don't think no, you did. No, I've, I've only seen the stills, the still pictures of it. Yeah, well, Daniel gave me this video and I watched it in my bedroom at, at Jaime's house. <laughs> and it was a glass factory. Somewhere very close to where uh, Carlos Dios lived, <laughs> creating the UFO. And then it's been blown, manu beautifully done, manually blown, putting the lights in it and what have you, and there's Carlos Dios's UFO. Um, I mean, Michael peddled that round for quite a few years, didn't he? Has been a fantastic contact case. So at, at the time, and it's like anything else with the the... Museum mummies where they just scribble the the label out. They didn't even take a photograph of it without the label on saying what it was. It was just there to make money. Now, I mean, I tell you that he never robbed people in, in, in Mexico. These are poor people. They pay a quid, two quid to go to a conference over there. But he gets 5,000 of them paying two quid. You know, yeah. it's a lot of money. And he's done a disservice to the subject as Jaime because I still never got to the bottom of the, the eclipse UFOs. Whether they are stars that are shown or not, I still have a problem. But that again was snapped up by, was it Brit Elder Phil? Is that the name that rings? It, it was, it was the Elders, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they sort of 
grabbed that as their copyright and this, that and the other and, and nothing was really done with it apart you from see, You never see any of the uncut versions of that, Ross. Yeah. You only see the edited versions, which, which makes you highly suspicious. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, Heine's subsequent uh, um, involvement. And yeah. when, when the Roswell mummy thing came out, you know, and I saw it, tell it's a mummy as soon as you look at it. Yeah. Uh, all I did was send it to a number of archaeologists, and they said, "Yeah, it's a mummy." <laughs> you know, and, and uh, Jaime was going to sue me. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I'm still waiting for that lawsuit. You know, um, but uh, it, it's a shame because he was in a position to do a lot of benefit. It, it, it wouldn't be Jaime was suing you. Be one of his colleagues because I'm his. Honestly, I'm. <laughs> You take him for what you get. He's a wonderful presenter, you know, but, uh, and he's passionate when he presents. He has the audience in his hand, even though his English isn't wonderful. Um, he, he puts a, an hour's talk on with, with video background and he talks over that video for an hour and he's so in tune with what he's doing. He still makes a good presentation and he's still on TV now and he's still got Tosin Millennia going out there and he's still doing UFO stuff, you know, night a week in Mexico City. So what we've discovered and whatever we all think of his tactics and his methods, <laughs> they're still watching him over there, but isn't that the same for all television? Well, yeah, and he still gets yeah. invitations to speak at UFO conferences, which amazes me, but there you go. Still gets invited. Yeah. Uh, but uh, when the original guy who did the the, the, Rothland, the the UFO Congress, me and Graham in many a chat with them, we used to sit down and, and say, you know, couldn't you be a little bit more careful with who you present? And he just says, look, I give them all a platform, they can say what they want, they can do what they want, and it's up to people, isn't it, to make their own minds up. It's as I mean, we feel we're letting people inform people of their own opinions, and it is a very opinionated subject. Mm. Uh, just something else I noticed on Facebook, and this is a guy, I love him, fruitcake, but I love him, Tony Topping. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's a great guy, um, and he is so passionate. I don't know what about, but he's so passionate. But he, he put on Facebook the other day, a whistleblower who's kept a secret from 1950, reference UFOs, has approached me. After 40 years, <laughs> well, to my reckoning, that's 70, he's 70 years since 1950. <laughs> now, as we've, um, gentlemen, as we've got about four or five minutes left now of the uh, the, the original time that I suggested earlier, um, which is an hour and a half, um, what are your plans for the future, Ross? Are you, are you going to go into any kind of publishing, you know, maybe a PDF kind of publication, or you're going to write any books on, on your experiences, or what are you going to do? Yeah, you know, as, as I get more time to myself, if you like, um, which isn't at the moment, but I do keep penning things down, and I keep putting the up chapter together, and I, I do keep my eye on what's going on. Um, um, I'm going to put an article together for you for the mag on on the radar sightings and the infrared stuff and just have a look at one or two cases that we've had in recent times and maybe one or two of the older ones. We've had a flavour of it tonight. Um, and I do like the subject. I love the subject. It's been with me 
more than half my life, you know, it's been with me 44, 45 years, and um, I can't let it go. I just feel that we're uh, obliterated, if you like, with a lot of rubbish. You know, going back to the the pre... The, the way I look at this, the, the only evidence that, that we've really got on this subject that's plausible, that could be almost trusted, is the very early stuff. Now, whether that's a genuine photograph of a model, that that's got to be taken into account. But what I'm what I'm getting at is, we've gone through all these sequences of events where, you know, in the nineties we got the X Files and everybody was seeing UFOs. Then we got Chinese lanterns everywhere and everybody was seeing UFOs. The newspapers, for goodness' sake, week on week were publishing photos of Chinese candles lanterns, whatever you want to call them, floating in the sky and calling them UFOs. Then everybody and the dog's got a drone now. You know, you can buy one for 15 quid and stick a couple of LEDs on it and, and off it goes. And there's people building drones that, that can do far bigger things than the, the little standalone toy or hobbyist ones, if you like. And then now we've got Elon Musk and, and, and 60-odd satellites going round in a chain in the sky there's so much stuff up there that whatever people film, it's going to be very hard for anybody to take it as a definite without that typical landing on the White House lawn. And and I think that if you go back to the the forties, look pre previously, you know, Jim Mars and, and many others used to talk about the um, mystery airships. Well, that's what they were airships. You, you know, end of story, there were never flying saucers. They were always drawn as airships, and there have been airships around for 10 or 15 years at the time. And people were building these things in the backyards and the barns in the States, trying to be the first to get something that worked properly. So I think it's the photographic evidence or the, the early film stuff, you know, like the, the stuff at the baseball ground and what have you might be something that, that we could take as genuine UFO footage. We're not mm -hmm. saying it's alien, we can't do that yet. Well, but I, I, do, I, I mentioned I, you the other night, Ross, I did a, an interview with a couple of gentlemen, and one of them, you know, he's filmed these lights and what have you, and I said, it would be any damn thing. But I said, um, I said, a colleague of mine called Russell Callan, who has some knowledge in this, this, uh, in, in this area, um, as a remark, and again, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Russ, but as it's as it would seem, you know, cameras and everything get better. Or well, we've all got one in our pocket, but yet the films that we take have <laughs> just got worse. And oh, we, oh, we don't take any at all. And, and you know, it, there's a population in this country of what 62 million people. Is there 40 million mobile phones? Mm -hmm. That's 40 million opportunities every minute of the day to take a photograph of something strange. Well, it is now, go, go on, Russ, go on. I'll, I'll just explain something. Well, you're going to say, they managed to take photographs of dogs riding bikes or skateboards. <laughs> <laughs> so, so people are active. Go on, Chris. You haven't said much. No, well, well not with you two Yorkshire <laughs> lads in it, you know. I mean, I'm East Yorkshire, <laughs> you two West Yorkshire. I don't stand a chance, do I? <laughs> what, I was, what I was thinking of, there, there was an article in our local paper, the Hull Daily Mail, about 18 months ago. And um, 
this massive... Don't win! Don't care, win! <laughs> well, that would be yours anyway. <laughs> um, a local lady living not too far from this object in the sky, uh, she lives in the centre of Hull, and um, she actually photographed a massive red light stationary in the sky. Now, this was put on the in the Hull Daily Mail, it went on the Hull Daily Mail website, and it, it was all over the place, until somebody pointed out that what she'd actually seen and photographed is what everybody in the city of Hull can see and photograph every single night. And probably you two gentlemen, because I know you've both been to Hull, over here to see me. In the centre of Hull, we have the, rack, the Reckless yeah. um, Chimney which is 150 foot oh. high and it's got a big red light on the top of it but of course the whole Daily Mail <laughs> thought it was a UFO <laughs> so that's another thing the press okay. has got wrong <laughs> I tell you what though Chris Hull has got one thing for me on, on the UFO stuff and it's going back now, god is it 15 maybe even 20, I don't know how many years is it? the whole fair yeah. that little, that video footage there is quite something and um, and again, somebody who got pilloried for all this footage. We did the the journey with with UFO magazine with Anthony Woods, who filmed all sorts of stuff. And yes, some of it were anomalous. We, we don't. Some of it were obviously balloons and yep. debris. But there's a clip in in that that is exactly the same as we've got in that wonderful clip from Hull Fair. And that's something worth looking at again, I think. Absolutely, yeah. This is people forget. This was, uh, if people want to see it, they can find it on YouTube. If you put in Hull UFO, Hull Fair, something along those lines, it will come up. And this thing, it's it's like a big square thing, isn't it, Russ? If I remember correctly. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. And it's certainly not CGI. Yeah. It, it, it's something physically yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Great stuff. Well, gentlemen, I think that is the place for us to stop uh, our little broadcast so Russ Callaghan um, thank you very much for joining us and it's been great to talk with you some interesting subjects covered and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll, I'll get to see you soon <laughs> yeah let's do it again sometime eh? do you want to say good night Phil I don't say good night yeah, Phil it's not Ronan and, and again you know <laughs> we, we wish you and all your colleagues all the best uh, you know during the current crisis uh, and we hope that all our, our, our postal delivery people, you know, stay stay healthy and stay safe. Yeah, it's very very good of you, Phil. And let's, I think we we should reiterate that message to everybody listening. You know, it's a very serious thing that's going on out there, and, and the government tells you every day to stay at home, save lives, and look after the NHS. Look after yourselves. That's important. Yeah. And just one last thing. Can you help me get my parcel from Barnsley? Because it's taking a while, but come on, what are you playing at? Uh, they're probably still feeding horse. It might be chewing in Barnsley. <laughs> Inside Outer Limits is a regular feature on the Paranormal UK radio network.